Okay, good afternoon everybody. Uh, we are on a rainy September afternoon and I am in front of uh, J.P. Warner. J.P. Warner is uh, first a friend, but uh, second he is a professor of orthopedics at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. He is the vice chair for safety and quality and he now is co-chair of the shoulder service at the Massachusetts General Hospital and head of the Boston Shoulder Institute. He has uh, come to Switzerland today and this is not the first time. I think he came the first time when traveling of Americans, certainly shoulder surgeons, to Europe was uh, largely felt unnecessary. Why in the hell did you ever come to Switzerland? So this was 1988 and for those who may be watching this you should understand that this was before the internet, before cell phones, uh, and you actually had to go to the library. This was a place you went to read journals, copy articles, and so I was uh, at the time convinced that I wanted to be a shoulder surgeon at a time when there were very few opportunities for advanced training. And I read, and I read uh, many publications, and I came across the publications, few publications that you did at the time, and um, decided that I would go to Europe. And I uh, have always had this uh, interest to follow what I think may be not just interesting, but exciting. And then y you may remember I wrote to you. That means I typed a letter on a computer, and not a computer, on a, on a typewriter. I put it in an envelope and I sent it and I waited for an answer. And, uh, and I showed up in uh, Bern, Switzerland at Inselspital. Uh, in 1988. And uh, was it your education that made you interested in what was going on abroad? Because at the time, Dr. Near, Dr. Rockwood, and Dr. Rowe were so dominating that uh, most Americans felt there was definitely nothing to learn uh, in an, on another continent. So I have a very personal journey um, into shoulder surgery. I was a resident and developed shoulder pain uh, associated with the sports that I was doing. And I learned firsthand what, li what little was really understood about diagnosis, let alone treatment. And so I spent some time reading about what my symptoms might have been and, and what the treatment might have been. And I even called some people about what I thought it might be because the local doctors at my institution, small institution named Mass General Hospital. Um, they were not so sure. And what really um, made me aware that we were not asking the right questions, because we certainly didn't have the right answers, was my first shoulder surgery that I had as a uh, mid-level resident at Mass General Hospital. Um, and I felt, well, after all of this personal experience and not having the questions and not having the answer, uh, when I did the reading, I thought maybe Switzerland would be a place to start finding questions, if not answers. Would you go back in the same position with all the experience of your lifetime now? Was it a good decision? Yeah, I think there's no question. Um, they're, they're on several levels. The first is professional, the second is personal. 
So when I came and visited you, you may remember you were introduced to me uh, by Roli Jakob as the Oberarzt at Inselspital. And my experience there was uh, in incredibly rich professionally but also personally because I met Reinhold Gans, who was very supportive of this American coming there. Uh, and as a consequence, I think I created this relationship that Actually, early in my career, I was spending more time in Europe than in the U.S. because I was invited frequently to the SESIC meetings to be in instructional courses and do these sorts of things. And so I had uh, a whole different group of friends. And that's endured for decades. You may remember you introduced me to Gilles Walsh, and from him I learned met Pascal Boileau and then Laurent Lafosse. And in this regard, I was differentiated from all my peers. And I think one thing that people should understand as you develop your career and your friends is that differentiation is what makes you unique and attractive as a product or service a person. And uh, I, I was lucky because people weren't doing this and I had the advantage of the insights and friendships that I created in Europe that served me very well in the coming years as I developed my career in the United States. Immediately about, uh, after your return, you went to Hospital for Special Surgery, if I remember correctly. And uh, do you remember that there were, were there clear cultural differences, behavior or approach between Europe and the United States? Well, there were then and there still are for a whole host of reasons. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, it's hard to think back uh, three decades ago and try to remember what the culture was like when I was just a student because the filter through which I see things now is completely different as a practicing um, academic physician. But yes, it was quite different. There was uh, a very strong emphasis in my program at Hospital for Special Surgery on sports-related injuries. I would say that degenerative conditions, uh, and reconstructive surgery were perhaps less well thought through and developed at the time. That was significantly different to what I learned, uh, you know, at, uh, in Selspital when I was working with you and others there. Um, fractures, for sure, were much further along in thinking about how to classify them, how to treat them, how to approach them. Uh, it was not so much the case at hospital for special surgery. Um, so also the case that the United States was then and has always been a different healthcare delivery system than in Switzerland. And I, I wasn't focusing on that so much when I was living in Switzerland at the time, but I've become much more aware of the difference between Switzerland and European systems in the United States. And that very much defines the culture. If we look back at the time, as you stated, without internet and without cell phone, I have the impression that visiting other persons was much more frequent, much more prevalent than it is now. Now people uh, go to Viumedi or they, uh, they go to congresses and uh, they show up, they show what they have done. But uh, visiting uh, on site, I think, has become, I don't know, much less attractive or much less uh, 
worthwhile for the younger generation? Do you think that is uh, correct or is that a smart uh, evolution or do you think that the direct contact in the OR, in the clinics for mostly, because that's what we are not seeing at the Congresses, has been influential and is important or less so? Um, I think you're partly right and partly wrong. Um, you know, because we're in different time periods, the world, the earth is flat now because of all the technology that we have. That doesn't mean it's better. It's always better to see firsthand surgeons in the environment trying to solve problems. This is one of the reasons why the uh, live surgery course in honesty is such a unique experience to see surgeons do an operation, sometimes very beautifully, sometimes with a struggle, um, without editing. You know, that's a, a, a very, um, very good experience and much more genuine than what you get if you watch a video where you look on Viumetti. Um, <clears throat> that said, it was not the case that surgeons from the United States would be coming to Europe so frequently, at least when I went. That, that was unique. And in, to be fair, in those days, the, there were only two formal shoulder fellowships in North America. Richard Hawkins had a short fellowship. And uh, people would visit Hawkins or Near or Rockwood, and then they would go into practice. They would not necessarily go visit many other people. So I'm not so sure that that was the norm then. Um, it, it subsequently became the case when there were more people to visit. And of course, the traveling fellowship of the American Shoulder Elbow Surgeons and SESIC um, made it more of a, the norm to, to go visit people in their own places. But what's changed now is that we have so many more touch points uh, through the internet, through ViewMedi, um, et cetera, through webinars. And while it's great, there's almost uh, too much noise to be able to sift through that and get the gems. And when you're with somebody, you get to learn their process of thinking from before, during, and after the care. And you get to see the problems that are being solved in real time and in context of past experience. You, you don't get that so well in um, just watching ViewMedi or, or watching a webinar. If we're looking back at uh, your career, when out, uh, I think, uh, there was not too much science around yet. And we were developing, everybody was developing, uh, was uh, trying to improve. Now behind you is a aphorism which says, medicine remains an art, but the art must be based on science. Is this the case today? Well, I, I, not always, as you, as you uh uh, well know, I think that many of us aspire to have a scientific methodology that is the foundation for what we do. Um, art and science go together because certainly as we learn to be better surgeons, there is skill associated with that and it's beautiful watching someone like Gans or Jesse Jupiter, to name people that are not shoulder surgeons, uh, but it took them many, many years to become as skilled as they were. But always there was science as a, as a foundation for them. Much of what we see published nowadays are um, uh, scientific studies, small cohort groups of patients without sufficient 
volume to avoid fragility, and uh, you know the questions are not so um, interesting, I would say. But uh, we have much more academics happening now. We have biomechanic labs for a whole host of reasons. Look at some of the wonderful things that have come out of these labs. I mean, cross-linked polyethylene, to name one. Um, and uh, we've gained great insights into how reverse prosthesis works and mechanics of arthroplasty, mechanics of instability, etc. That's, as you know, still going on. You're part of that. Um, so we have the, the vehicles to do that now that we didn't have before. We have a lot more scientists that support us and help us in the labs than we did before. And I think the sheer volume of that allows us to accomplish more than we ever could before we had the interest of our um, collaborators that we now have. You personally came from a very clinical, let me say, position of a very active uh, surgeon, physician, and have uh, developed a lot of interest in value-based healthcare, in healthcare delivery, uh, in uh, economics also, and in entrepreneurship with medicine. Uh, where does that interest come from? How does it serve you, and how does it serve patients? I, I think I've always been of the mindset that in order to avoid becoming burnt out or stale in your thinking, you have to move into areas where you're not quite so comfortable. And so I had no formal training in anything to do with economics or with business, but healthcare has grown into a huge business. And um, most physicians, there's a statement that you're either at the table or on the table. And so in the United States, uh, which, which is really big medicine, um, physicians are becoming um, much more fungible, uh, replaceable, commodities. They're not playing as big a role, I think, in the direction of healthcare. And I became interested later in my career to better understand the economic forces driving healthcare on many levels, so as at least to have insight into this. And then, most importantly, the research that was happening. I think can be framed in the context of better questions if you're always thinking about what value you create. Value is a very misused term. Value can be used by many individuals without really knowing even what it's about. Is value for whom? Is it for the patient? Is it the hospital? Is it the insurer? Is it society? Who, who gets the value? And so any innovation that is created, uh, disruptive or otherwise, I felt needed to be viewed through the lens of value. And that, for me, became very exciting, very interesting, which is why I went back to business school and why I'm, I'm kind of more interested in that now. You know, I've always sort of tried to put myself in a position where I'm not doing the same thing over and over and over again, but walking around it and looking at it from a different angle, and that's kind of why I tried to understand business better. Do you believe or do you doubt that uh Looking at the value for the patient alone is something that is uh, outdated, or is that still the you know the, the panacea to really focus on the on the individual patient? Well, we take a Hippocratic oath. Codman believed in value. In fact, he's probably one of the first people to ever consider value in the context of what Michael Porter at Harvard Business School talks about, which is the outcome divided by the cost. 
He knew that things that worked were less expensive than things that failed. He wrote about that more than a century ago, around a century ago. And William Mayo said as well, the only interest is the interest of the patient. So I think that is our heritage. That should be our, our, our um, North Star that guides us. It's not so simple in healthcare anymore. And um, what's probably the most important thing, in, I think, for the future of healthcare is alignment. How do we align the interest of the patient with the interest of the hospital, with the interest of the physician, with the interest of society, with the interest of scientists doing the research? That is the biggest problem, I think, to move forward. Value becomes the central focus in that, in that issue. In our country and in many countries that I believe to, to, to have a look into, it is so that uh, value is uh, still related to cost. And uh, the question very often, which seems to be very, very unclear, is what cost we're talking about. Because uh, especially orthopedics, I think, is very particular. If you can't prevent costs from occurring in 10, 15 years, who accounts for that? If you have the cost for society, unemployment, or sick leave, or how, how, how do, you, do you see a problem there with uh, assessing cost also in our literature, which says uh, this costs so much, this costs so much, and this procedure costs so much? Is that uh, accurate, and is that representing reality, or is that just a clue? You know, there are finite resources. That's economics. That's just how it is. You can't continue to spend without thinking about what you produce. Um, so that's part of it. The, the other part of it is that um, uh, healthcare is becoming progressively more and more expensive. In the United States of America, it's 18% of GDP or so. It's unsustainable. Um, and in that setting, something has to happen. It, otherwise, it will bankrupt business. It is the anchor that most businesses drag because it takes away their profitability and their ability to pay their employees. A big part of the expense of any business is managing healthcare costs. And that money is taken away from the people who work for the business, etc. So it is central to the economic welfare of a society. Um, that said, there are a lot of bizarre things that happen in healthcare, at least in my country. One being that we pay for the service, not for the quality of the service, not for the outcome of the service. So Medicare, if you, if you would do a, an operation on a patient and it's a miserable failure or it's a success, the payment is exactly the same. I don't know how that is sustainable in any business model. Uh, now, we, certain things take more risk and certain things should be very, very reproducible. And yet, we don't value that reproducibility. We don't value low complication rates, et cetera, not in the context of our healthcare system. In my opinion, that must change. And we should be accountable the way other businesses are accountable for the services provided. Healthcare has not been that way going forward, and it's not going to be feasible in any model that I can think of unless that accountability is somehow baked into the, into the equation for value. And as a consequence, we lower costs. You just mentioned that whether you have a good result or you have a bad result, uh, your reimbursement is the same. 
uh, let me take that one step further, you know. The reimbursement is also the same whether your intervention has been done for nothing or for somebody who was really sick. So what is your opinion as to the importance, also quant quantitatively, of uh, the indication for things we are doing? As we can talk about MRI studies, we can talk about uh, vaccination, we can talk about meniscectomies or, or, or acromioplasties or total shoulders. What, what is the role of indication and how are we going to deal with uh, the question of a correct or incorrect indication? I, I think a very important part of the answer has to do with incentive. Again, I, I don't work in Europe. I can't talk about countries in Europe, but from my readings and understanding of my own environment, it is a well-known fact that if you incentivize more care, you will get more care. And in a fee-for-service model, don't get me wrong, I'm a, a capitalist, <laughs> okay, I'm not a socialist, but in a fee-for-service model, this is why we have 18% GDP, cost of health care. Now we have more MRIs, I believe, in the state of Massachusetts than the country of Canada. And we use these to screen patients in situations that are completely not necessary. And this generates revenue for a hospital. What then is the incentive for the hospital to control use of resources like that in order to benefit society as a whole versus overuse them? And the same goes if it's surgery too. You know, it is well known that if you look at um, patients with different types of insurance, that the ones with the better insurance will have more elective surgery of a certain type than the ones with less good insurance. That's in the United States. That's, and unfortunately, human nature is human nature. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I have a big problem with that. I, I think everybody has their own moral compass. There needs to be some way to incentivize decision-making, incentivize appropriate care. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has tried to do that with, with uh, appropriate use criteria and other guidelines. But these are largely, uh, you know, voluntary. That remains a problem in the United States. And I don't think that going the other direction, where you have capitated care, meaning that you can only provide a certain amount of care for a given population because that's all the money you're given to care for them, that incentivizes the opposite in, in thinking. Midway between the two is where we need to be. How do we get there is the big dilemma. Well, you know, Christensen has published that he thinks that uh, approximately 50% of the care provided to patients in the United States is driven by either the hospital or the physicians and not by patient needs. So is, is there a problem that we do not have uh, any true scientific background for indications? It's not just that, it's also costs. You know, the, the CMS, which is the, you know, the agency oversighting um, Medicare, creates incentives that are opposite of the behavior that we want to have. They should incentivize things that lead to lower costs. They often do quite the opposite. Why they do that, I don't know. Um, so I, I, I think that there is mixed messaging happening here and mixed incentives happening. And, um, you know, uh, there, Ideally, 
there should be consensus-driven care. Even in a, in, a, in a hospital of, let's say you have specialists doing shoulder surgery or knee surgery or whatever, there should be some consensus of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate with oversight. Probably the key to all of this is the sunshine that we, the sunshine that we have is from measurement and accountability for outcomes. If we measure everything and we know what works and what doesn't work and what the cost is, that creates you know, the backdrop for um, indications. But measurement is not the current culture in healthcare, certainly in orthopedics um, in the United States. It, it's moving that direction, but that will be perhaps the solution to indications. Well, you know, one of our missions is to create the delta between in-go and outcome. I mean, that's, that's where the value is, that we really gain quality of life or, or what have you, or, or freedom from pain or whatever. That's the difference between before and after. If I look at that in orthopedics, it's uh, very interesting to see that as opposed to, for instance, cardiology, you know, they measure cholesterol level and uh, whatever lab you take, if you take the same patient to 10 different uh, labs, they'll have the same value. If you look at how much pain somebody has or what kind of range of motion somebody has, uh, two residents in the same institution will have very different figures. So how, how do we deal with that? That's difficult. You know, you, you made that comment before to me, and I have it in one of my talks that if uh, someone would ask me to raise my arms over my head, if Dr. Warner would ask me or a pretty girl would ask me, which do you think I would raise my arms higher for? Um, so motivation has a lot to do with it. We also know that um, scientific studies of pain have demonstrated that if you tell someone really good news before you apply a force that creates pain versus really bad news, you will have exactly proportional positive or negative response. By that I mean, tell them something bad, they'll have more pain. Tell them something really good, they'll have less pain. Everything is filtered here. Uh, that, is, that makes us very different than cardi cardiology or these other areas. So part of this, I think, is the way we select our patients. It's not so easy to compare apples to oranges to grapefruits. Everybody's different when they come with their problem. And, um, you know, inappropriate patient selection may find you situations where you can't make anybody happy. And then there are people that are just, they're gonna be happy because they believe in you no matter what you do. If you look at your personal, or, or how you have personally been influenced, what, what kind of information has influenced you? I give you a few options. Mentors, randomized controlled trials, registries, who or what has really influenced you in your practice? Yeah, I have to say all of the above. The problem in orthopedics is that randomized controlled trials are not only not so common, but ethically rather difficult to do. For example, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, it's very difficult to say one prosthesis is better than another through randomization. Ethically, that's a problem. Registries help you to agree, but usually only to the extent that they show inferiority of a product that is then removed. But they also incorporate tier one, two, three surgeons that may or may not make errors that get baked into the registry. The Australian registry is a perfect example. Um, yet we can see trends, for example, between 
conventional arthroplasty and reverse arthroplasty. That can be very helpful if we think about reverse, and clearly that may be fueling some of the growth of reverse, for example, in its application to osteoarthritis because of glenoid geometry or whatever and registries like that. Um, mentors are very important because uh, usually the good mentors, my mentors, are onto something before it finds its way into a registry or any kind of scientific study. And, you know, experience and intuition, it takes a long time to put that into print. And this is why we want to have groups of individuals sharing difficult cases. In fact, um, I created the Codman Shoulder Society in part to be able to have an expert network of individuals that will help one another help their patients. Even I've been here for less than a day and I've seen some of the things you're thinking about that may one day become pretty disruptive in terms of how we approach things. Um, we tend to do the same things over and over again that don't work and every now and then somebody will have a, a bright idea that you don't have and you know sharing in community difficult cases can at least create questions that need to be answered. We don't do that so much either. So I added that to the group too, a peer group that helps one another. But all of what you said is, is, uh, is very important, um, but one alone doesn't solve the problem. I had the impression that sometimes groups uh, are preventing progress. I mean, groups tend to, at the end, to agree with what is already here. And, um, I am not sure whether the groups are not transporters of the group leaders' ideas at the end. So do you, do you think that uh, the groups are, are essential? And the uh, second very important question for me is, I, you know, I see a very big problem with the prevalence and with the importance attributed to randomized controlled trials. The randomized controlled trials that I see have always excluded the difficult cases that I have to treat. They're never in there. If I really have an open question and look at the randomized controlled trial, this patient has not, did not fit into one of the groups of a randomized controlled trial. And I think that we are really at, uh, and I ask you your opinion through that, you know, I think we are at really uh, at a crossroads. You know, on one side, we are going towards personalized medicine, which I think we intuitively or, or art-wise have always done, maybe not scientifically enough. And on the other hand, the concept of randomized controlled trials is completely the opposite. It goes towards treating cohorts. It does not go towards treating a patient. And usually the results of the, either they are controversial, same, same question in two different randomized controlled trials, or they do not answer for your question. So how do we go from there and why do we put that much money, that much effort, that much you know, credibility into randomized controlled trials which evaluate patients that we don't need to treat. Let me take the first one 
first part of the question, which has to do with groups, and then I'll come to randomized control trials. So there's a, an expression um, you, you told me, if two people agree one is not a surgeon. But what if we have more than two? Um, there's another expression that if you send 10 people into a room and tell them to, to create a horse, they will give you a camel. So a lot of this has to do with chemistry of the groups that are together, not too big, not too small. And when I talk about an expert network group, these are people that really want to help one another. Not that are just randomly getting together or getting together in large groups like Delphi statements are created, this sort of thing. Um, I, I personally find that helpful, and my patients as well believe that that's a value. There's a value to that. I mean, I may call you, I may call Gilles Walsh or somebody else and say, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? And I don't think you have an agenda for me, but it helps me in context of my problem. That's the kind of expert group I'm talking about. Um, now, if we talk about randomized controlled trials, for those who are interested, we had Mo Bandari as a visiting uh, speaker uh, at the Cotton and Shoulder Society. That's online. You can go see what he uh, um, said. And he talked about the, the um, evidence-based medicine that we deal with. Um, what he pointed out, if I remember correctly, I may be misquoting him, was that if you look at randomized controlled trials, you find about 25% of the highest level, level one studies that are done, are ultimately proven wrong by the exact same duplicate study. Trying to get the same question answered, but it has the exact opposite conclusion. And that may be because of the factors that you said. That's, that's, it's difficult to control for that. Um, so I think our problem is the size of these studies. I think our problem is the inclusion criteria, the outliers, etc. It's very, very difficult to do this. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it's even worse if you're looking at cohort studies, which is most of what we base our evidence on, which is about 75% of the time. A similar study will be done, a level four study of a cohort that'll be exactly the opposite of the one that you just read. So it, it's, it's hard to find the best approach here, except for a combination of things. And then I think the last thing I would say, and I, I'm actually going to give you a book, um, and I don't want to misquote this, but the book is entitled Think Like a Rocket Scientist. We need to remember that the evidence that we use is based on scientific studies that give us probabilities, not absolute answers. So when we make decisions based on literature, evidence, whatever, we are assembling a bunch of probabilities from studies that have been done, not an absolute answer. And if we remember this, we, we won't be so disappointed that we are not absolutely accurate in, our, in what we're doing for our patient. If we're talking about probabilities, what is, the, what is probably the biggest progress that has been made in shoulder surgery during your career? So um, I, I answer that by saying I asked that question of the members of the Codman Shoulder Society, which are a group of people that just want to be members of an organization that tries to espouse to the principles of Codman. Codman said, show me something different for this chance of being better. That sounds a lot to me like an entrepreneur. It frankly sounds a lot to me like the way you think. Um, and uh, so I put that question to the members and I said, can you give me in the last 50, 60 years, the most innovative developments in rank order that you think have changed orthopedics. And it would come as no surprise um, that the number one was reverse replacement. 
And I think most of us would agree that had we never known about reverse replacement, it would be a completely different world for our patients. Now, I don't mean to leave the other things out. There are many things that are listed there that have promise. Most of them seem to be derivative and incremental. That one was a major jump, and it's not like other people didn't think of it before Gramont did. He just had the perseverance and the courage, I didn't know him, to, per, to manage through all the ridicule to develop something that others could perfect even more that has completely changed the landscape of how we treat our patients. That would be at least in the running, I think, for most of us to say that that has been transformational. That's what Steve Jobs said, you know, he said, those who are crazy enough to believe that they can change the world are those who are going to do it. So that's probably for, for Gramont a good statement. What will be the next step that you would hope for? What, what problem would be the most interesting problem in shoulder surgery currently for you to be solved? You know, to answer that question, you have to see over the horizon. You know, this is what great leaders do, great entrepreneurs do, great I think scientists do. I mean, look at all the greatest scientists, uh, greatest thinkers out there, Einstein, others, there are so many. Um, I, it's, I, I don't think I have the brain that I can do that. I can, I can tell you some things that I think about. It's somewhat mundane to say that healthcare is unsustainable in its current form. We have to solve the problem of cost and value or it's over. There's no way that we can continue to provide any advanced kind of treatment for anybody. That, that has to be part of it. That's not so innovative, but maybe a difficult lift. The things that I'm interested in, I mean, I'm very interested to understand the biologics and what may be coming there. Uh, there's a lot of hype, as there usually is, but somewhere buried in there is something that's going to make a big difference. The other thing that's closer, uh, not my work, but, but uh, closer to the way I think about things, um, is this. You started the concept, popularized the concept of tenant transfers to improve function that was otherwise unrecoverable, that made a huge difference in the quality of patients' lives. And you know well that the person I work with now, Bassam Elisan, um, you know, with a fair amount of bravado and style different than your own, has capitalized on that and extended on that and created all sorts of operations that are reanimating the upper extremity where before that wasn't possible. Maybe I just don't know the world that other people may see that um, differently than me, but I, I think scaling this will be a major benefit to our patients because along with these innovations, including reverse replacement and other things, are an enormous burden of failure. What do you do with these horribly affected individuals? And I think that there is a huge promise in reanimating the upper extremities through tendon transfers and these kinds of things that are happening now. Maybe that's not that disruptive, but I can see that. That's not over the horizon for me. Well, so we are back uh, at the beginning. Actually, we are still, at the end, we still get to the point where we try to find better solutions for our patients, for individual patients, for, their, for, which, for whom there is no other solution. And that's what we have been working for. I am very proud to have uh, had you here, uh, to have been your friend for many, many years. Thank you very much for joining here, and I wish you a wonderful Congress and a good stay in the city of Zurich. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.